You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 413 of the podcast. Today is Friday, June 17th, 2022. Today we're going to go over some church history and talk about sound doctrine and Christian orthodoxy. And this may be a shorter episode for a couple of reasons. One, because I don't necessarily have a whole lot to say personally about the creeds. I have a little bit to say, but I think it would be useful to go over them, to read them, to read briefly what has been said about them, their backstory, the explanation for them, and to think about the formation of these early creeds. I have been thinking a lot here lately about orthodoxy, and actually even just yesterday, we went to Wampus Used Books in Loveland, Colorado, my wife and I, plus our five-month-old son, Andrew, plus my father-in-law, Jerry. And several of the books that we picked up had to do with trying to understand better where we're at when it comes to Christianity in America right now in particular. I am not an expert on the condition of the church around the world. I do know a thing or two, but First and foremost, I do consider myself to be pretty aware of where the church is at. I'm fairly familiar with where the church is at across the U.S. I have friends and family all over the U.S. And for that matter, I've lived in three states for good chunks of my life at this point. Ohio, Montana, Colorado, not necessarily in that order. But I've got family and friends all over the U.S., who are pastors or who are Christians, who give me a flavor. I also keep a close watch over things that are uh, coming down the pike in terms of trends or pushes. And I also follow politics quite a lot. And I see some things in politics and in reading political philosophy and in reading modern history, which give me some pause when it comes to the expression of Christian faith in this country, what to make of it, how should we think of its influence on us, and also how should we think of the way that it is influenced by events outside the church. There is just no getting away from what happens outside the church affecting what happens in the church, and yet what we want to do is we want to keep ourselves unspotted from this world. James says in the New Testament that religion, which God the Father finds acceptable, pleasing to him, is this, to keep oneself unspotted from the world and to visit widows and orphans in their need, to attend to those who are in need. So those two things are solid. Don't just have a creed. Don't just have good sound doctrine in the abstract. You should be about your father's business the way that Christ was. You should be following Christ and not just counting on him as fire insurance, if you will. And yet, 
when it says in the New Testament also that we should not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, we do well to consider whether sometimes the expression of Christian faith in the United States, since I think most of my audience is American, we do well to consider whether the expression of Christian faith in the United States is conformed to the pattern of this world. It does not take much reading of news about the church, in the church, in the United States, to realize that liberalism and Christianity are up for debate. We are debating, and have been for some time, how liberal can we be, how tolerant can we be towards liberalism, and then as liberal Christianity, liberal theology becomes ascendant and even dominant, how tolerant will the liberal theology status quo be towards conservatives? Do they even have a seat at the table if they are a conservative? Or do the same things get said about conservative Christians? And by that, I mean primarily those who are conservative theologically. Do the same things get said about and done to conservative Christians in this country, which so often are said and done to political conservatives in this country? Are these two sides of the same coin where actually at the root what we have is a theological dispute and we would do well to resolve it as Christians and not resolve it by affirming heresy or antinomianism, which has been regarded throughout church history as being heretical. Lawlessness is something that Jesus cites, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, which I read some verses from for you yesterday, when he says that not everyone that says Lord, Lord to him on the last day will enter the kingdom of heaven. He'll say to some of them, to a good many of them, depart from me. I never knew you. Worker of lawlessness. So what we find is, yes, we are under grace, but no, we ought not to sin. God forbid that we should sin, that grace might abound all the more. There is grace for those who are grieved, who are tormented by their own imperfection. If you are a messy person and you recognize your messiness and you recognize that your house is messy, your heart is messy, your family is messy, your friendships are messy, your church is messy, and that grieves you, take heart because there is grace for you in Christ. And yet, if you're not grieved by those things, if actually you celebrate and affirm those things, if you put those things in the place of prominence and you celebrate the fact that you have made them your identity in your lifestyle, you spend the whole month doing so, you are no Christian. You are an anti-Christian, actually. You are a heretic. You are not saved, and you are headed for hell. So you should, <laughs> you should repent. Don't fear man who can only kill the body and then has nothing more he can do to you. But I think that's exactly what far too much of the status quo church in America has done over the past century, increasingly more and more. So much of the status quo has become fearing man who can kill the body or 
ignoring entirely what Jesus says when he warns the crowds who come out to hear him preach and teach to not perform their acts of charity like the Pharisees do, who announce their giving with trumpets and tambourines so they can be seen by men, so they can be thought well of. Don't, when you pray, pray like the Pharisees do, who like to pray loud prayers on the street corners and they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't pray like that. Actually, when you pray, go into an inner room of your house where no one can see you and no one can hear you except your Father in heaven so that he actually hears your prayers. Which would you rather? Would you rather these people, these fine people, think really well of you because they hear you pray publicly or would you rather God hear you? Not that it always has to be a choice between the two, but if you had to choose, I should hope you would choose to be heard by God. And yet what we find is the status quo is motivated all too often by selfish gain, vain and selfish ambition, a desire to be thought well of, to be patted on the back, to be given the seat of honor. There's far too much mixed motives, Uh, whether it's fear of man. Hey, we don't want to get into this because pragmatically, practically, it will upset some. They might pick up stones to stone me. And then what? Well, and then you go to be with your father who's in heaven. Then you attain the resurrection of the dead. If you're in Jesus, if you're in Christ, if you are in fact adopted in. But nevertheless, I think we do well to consider the creeds and to weigh and measure what they say about the state of Christianity in our day. And I'll have some commentary at the tail end, but first and foremost, I want to go through several of the most important or most noteworthy, most notable creeds from church history, starting with what's known as the Apostles' Creed, moving on to the Nicene Creed, or the Nicaea Constantinopolitan, Constantinopolitan, Constantinopolitan. How do you say that? No wonder we always just call it the Nicene Creed. Nicaea Constantinopolitan. I think I got it right. Uh, also, we'll talk about the Chalcedonian Creed, and we'll talk about the Athanasian Creed, or what is known as the Athanasian Creed. And there's a little bit of fun stuff that I found out with regards to that, but. First things first, the Apostles' Creed is thought to have been developed around the year 180 AD. So 180 AD. It was the product of Roman Christians who developed this creed, possibly to critique Marcion, according to Wikipedia. According to PRCA.org, which is the Protestant Reformed Churches of America.org. The name of this creed does not point to apostolic authorship, but rather to the fact that it summarizes briefly the fundamental truths of Scripture as given to us through the apostles. In its simplest form, the creed probably originated in the early part of the second century and arose in connection with the instruction of catechumens. There's a new word for you today in preparation for baptism. In its present form, this creed is probably of no earlier date than the latter part of the 5th century. It is the best known of the ecumenical creeds, and it gives simple, brief, and yet full expression to our, quote, Catholic, undoubted, 
Christian faith, end quote. It reads as follows. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So there you have what is known as the Apostles' Creed, accepted by the Western Church primarily. Not just the Roman Catholic Church, but a great many, if not all, I can't see, actually, I can't see, I can't see anybody who is actually Christian or any denomination which is actually Christian and not just pretending to be disputing any piece of this. This is, this is what it is. This is what it is. This is our faith in a nutshell. But wait, there's more. There's also what is typically referred to in the shorthand as the Nicene Creed. Again, from Wikipedia, expansion and revision of the 325 Creed of Nicaea, and we'll get into that because that's also interesting, but we'll save it. Includes a new section on the Holy Spirit. New and improved now with the Holy Spirit. It is the most widely accepted Christian creed. It critiques Apollinarism and a later addition, the Filioque clause resulted in disagreement between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. This creed is acknowledged by name in Article 9 of our Confession of Faith, and this is from, again, prca.org. It expresses the truth of Scripture concerning the doctrine of the Trinity, and it was occasioned by various errors with respect to that truth. In its earliest form, the creed was adopted by the Council of Nicaea, AD 325, over against the heresy of Arianism. It was revised by the Council of Constantinople, AD 381, which enlarged the confession concerning the Holy Ghost. The Latin or Western Church added to the article on the procession of the Holy Ghost the words and the Son, Latin filioque, a change which has been maintained since the Council of Toledo, AD 589. And the Nicene Creed reads as follows. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. 
I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Again, that is the Nicene Creed. When you hear reference to the Nicene Creed, that is the Nicene Creed. It was, in that form, solidified in 381 AD, and it is ecu- it is ecumenical in its acceptance. We talked in our last episode about ecumenism. This one is accepted by the ecumenical church. So pretty much universally, if you are in any way, shape, or form, either Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant in any legitimate form, you accept and embrace the Nicaea Constantinopolitan Creed. Moving on, the Chalcedonian Creed, or Chalcedonian. I think Chalcedonian is correct. But anyway, 451 AD. This one was in response to Nestorian teachings. According to Wikipedia, the Chalcedonian formulation defines that Christ is, quote, acknowledged in two natures, end quote, which, again, quote, come together into one person and one hypostasis, end quote, accepted by nearly all Christian denominations except Oriental Orthodoxy, the Assyrian Church of the East, and much of Restorationism. Again, from PRCA.org, the Creed of Chalcedon, AD 451 is not mentioned by name in any of our three forms of unity. This is, again, them speaking, not me speaking. But the doctrine set forth in it is clearly embodied in an Article 19 of our Confession of Faith. It constitutes an important part of our ecumenical heritage. The Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon settled the controversies concerning the person and natures of our Lord Jesus Christ and established confessionally the truths of the unity of the divine person and the union and distinction of the divine and human natures of Christ. It condemned especially the error of Nestorianism, which denied the unity of the divine person in Christ. The error of Apollinarianism, which denied the completeness of Christ's human nature, and the error known as Eutychianism, which denied the duality and distinction of the divine and human natures of our Lord Jesus Christ. What was confessionally established at Chalcedon concerning the person and natures of Christ has continued to be the confession of the church Catholic ever since that time. And I quote, So, what does the Chalcedonian creed? Somebody let me know. Chalcedonian, Chalcedonian, which do you prefer? Which is correct? Help an ignorant layman out. (laughs) What does this creed say? Well, let's read it. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, 
only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. End quote. So you see here a lot more specificity, a lot more emphasis being placed on, no, 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 nope, nope, let me repeat myself, but I'll talk slower this time, and I'll I'll be more detailed. That's an interesting fact of the creeds is that as you go along through church history, they get more and more detailed because there are more and more errors, if not heresies, which deny certain aspects because they weren't explicitly spelled out. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? No, 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 no. It's this, okay? Let me give... A better explanation. Let me give you more detail. Also, next, we come to what is known as the Athanasian Creed, 500 AD. Western Christian denominations accept the Athanasian Creed. But an interesting thing here, it is referred to as the Athanasian Creed, and yet there's a lot of disagreement with attributing this creed to Athanasius. Athanasius, a historical bishop of the church, uh, not necessarily the author of this creed. Actually, there's a number of uh, details in here, which we won't get into in this podcast episode, but which point to a Augustinian idea that wouldn't necessarily have been uh, common to Athanasius per se. Some distinctives that sound a lot more like Augustinianism here in the Athanasian Creed. But nevertheless, it is affirmed, it is old and historic, and the point really is not, first and foremost, who wrote it, as if the authority comes from them. That's an important thing to realize as well. I think when you come to something like this Athanasian Creed, even when you look at the Chalcedonian Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, The point is not first and foremost what human author wrote this down. The point is, first and foremost, is this sound doctrine? Can we search the scriptures to see whether these things are so, particularly as error and heresy come up and need to be refuted and need to be contended with? Beware of false teachers, Jesus says. What does the Athanasian Creed actually say? You might be wondering. Well, this one is a lot more in-depth even still, it's thought to have come about around the year 500 AD, but I'll just read it for you. But it's it's a full page, so hold on. Listen up. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled. Without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this that we worship one God in Trinity 
and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit is all one. The glory, equal. The majesty, co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son, Lord, and the Holy Spirit, Lord. And yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after another, none is greater or lesser than the other, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity." Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of substance of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God, one altogether not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ." who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account of their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. And I quote, this right here, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of giving basic instructions, simple instructions to children. I have eight, so I know a thing or two about giving instructions to children. I love my children dearly. They are smart, intelligent, funny, beautiful, handsome, 
lovely, wonderful, charming children. I love them dearly. They are the biggest blessing in my wife's and my life apart from salvation. But sometimes I give these children of ours instruction, or sometimes my wife, who is much more succinct, as a matter of course, will give them simple instructions. All the components are there, but it was brief. And then what you'll find is some lawyering happens. Well, you know, like actually specifically, explicitly the word you used, mom, was this. And so do I really need to do X, Y, and Z? I, you know, I did the bare minimum, but I actually kind of want to interpret what you said here in this snarky, smart way. And uh, how about that? So then what you find yourself having to do when you have children like this, which we do, and they take after their father, because I'm that way. <sighs> True story. Uh, what, we, what you end up having to do is you end up having to repeat yourself, but give more detail and be more precise and shore up and close up these loopholes that your children are just born, or at least our children. Our children are born naturals at exploiting the loopholes. And so what you find is as you have to repeat yourself with more and more uh, lawyer-esque children, you find that you're going to more and more lengths, more and more detail, and you're getting increasingly, maybe even a little bit frustrated or aggravated to where you find yourself just giving just like overboard, like going overboard. And there's a little bit of this Athanasian creed that honestly feels overboard. Like, man, like, okay, we get it. But the thing is from church history, not everybody gets it. Or sometimes people don't want to get it. They actually want to come up with this newfangled innovation with regards to the person and character of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to get a following for themselves accordingly and to be popular accordingly. And so I I feel like I read this Athanasian Creed and I am imagining a very exasperated churchman or host of churchmen who are trying to look out for, watch over, the sheep entrusted to them by God's grace. And finally, they're just like, that's it. Like We are going to make this so absolutely airtight that there is no wiggle room. Like This is the Christian position. This is what the scriptures say. This is what it is. You don't believe this. You're not a Christian, period. End of discussion. That's it. Which is, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Like it's not like super funny because it's it's very serious that we would have good doctrine and we wouldn't be heretics. But it's kind of funny because I'm imagining a little bit of a dad moment here in the formation of the Athanasian Creed. Oh, to be a fly on the wall, as they say. Now, as I said before, there's some interesting stuff with regards to the Nicene Creed. Originally, the first Council of Nicaea happened in the year 325 AD, and its purpose, the purpose of the calling of this council, this ecumenical council of the church Catholic with a small c, if you will, calling bishops from all over. And this has, by the way, some biblical precedent when we read in Acts 15 about the resolution of the problem of the circumcision party, as it's known, which again, I maintain, sounds like about the worst sort of party 
If you ever get an invitation to a circumcision party, your RSVP should be, no thanks, no thanks. I'm good. That's just not my idea of a good time. But nevertheless, the Council of Jerusalem is talked about in Acts 15. And it is apostles and elders of the church gathering together to figure out what do we do with the claims of the Judaizers who say that these Gentile believers, these non-Jewish, Greek in particular, Christians have to keep the law in order to be recognized as brothers and sisters in the church. In order to be admitted and recognized and treated as co-equal members of the body of Christ here on earth, what do we make of the claims of the Judaizers? And the conclusion of the matter after much debate was, no, that's not right. We couldn't keep the law. Our fathers couldn't keep the law. Why are we hoping that these guys will? Nevertheless, there were changes made from the first council of Nicaea and the creed that comes out of that first council of Nicaea to resolve or try to resolve the Arian controversy. When the first council of Constantinople takes place in 381. So, and this is like, I mean, we're thinking to ourselves, relatively speaking, it's all 1600 to 1700 years ago, right? So 325, 381, all I see is that first leading number of three. And I know that this is the fourth century. And I know that that was a long time ago, but imagine being at that first council of Nicaea in 325. And you've got How many years is that? 56 years. 56 years. And we need to call another council. 56 years. Just a little longer than Roe v. Wade has been legal in the U.S. To give you some perspective. So this has all been addressed, the first council of Nicaea, and yet it's still an issue. And now we've got to shore some things up. We've got to make more explicit, give more detail. And then you get what we now know of as being the Nicene Creed. But the first Council of Nicaea, the creed that came out of that, read as follows, and I quote, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. But those who say, there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So there you have an anathema for those who disagree with this. This is a dividing line. This is where we have to understand the limits of calls for unity. There are times and circumstances in which there's just no getting around saying, no, you are not a Christian. What you believe is heresy. That is apostate. That is false teaching. You are a false teacher. You believe in a false gospel. Therefore, you are not under grace. You are still dead in your sins. No, no. Moving on, though, 56 years later, 
after that fairly simplified version, we've got some changes. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Now, the first version, 56 years earlier, just said maker of all things visible and invisible, which you would think would be comprehensive enough, and yet they wanted to be more explicit, more detailed. So they didn't change the substance of what they meant the first time around, but they were making it more clear for those who wanted to dispute. So we have the additional detail here. Maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Okay. Why is that important? Because part of what's going on with the Arian controversy, with a lot of the Christological controversies that denied either Christ's full humanity or his full divinity, is that you had some Greek philosophy at root, which was taking many captive, which denied the goodness of material things and claimed that material things were inherently corrupt always, but the things that were spiritual, those are good. And therefore, Jesus only appeared to be a man, but couldn't have been because that would make him material and material things are bad. So this is to say, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible? No, not so fast. God made the earth as well. And that's important because it gives him ownership. It also is to say that matter is not inherently evil, particularly where we go back to Genesis and God looked and saw that what he had made was good, 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 very good. Also too, in the Nicene Creed that comes out of that first council of Constantinople. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten. So they added the word only, the only begotten son of God, begotten of the father before all worlds. That also was important to note for those who were wanting to claim that Jesus was created. Now, before all worlds, he is eternal he is before creation, not just in order of importance, but also by fact of his being co-eternal. He is very God of very God. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. They added that part too, by the way. Came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary. They added those parts as well to emphasize the fact that Christ was in heaven from eternity and he proceeds from the Holy Ghost and from the Virgin Mary. He is fully God, fully man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. They added that as well. Instead of just saying he suffered and then the third day he rose again. Now let's get more detailed. He was crucified for us. He was crucified. He didn't just suffer emotionally, spiritually, and appeared to suffer physically. No, he was crucified in body for us under Pontius Pilate and was buried because he had a body and his body was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. And that's important too, because that solidifies as if anyone wants to dispute based on a lot of sophistry and speculation. No, 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 no. Go back to the scriptures. What, what does God's word actually say? You can't just make stuff up out of your imagination. No, according to the scriptures, God's word says it. That's what it is. 
and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. So he's not just in heaven loitering. Christ is sitting at the right. Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is God, right? He is not just a man. He is not just God. He is fully God and fully man. He sits on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again with glory, which is to say he's going to come again. He came the first time from heaven. He will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. They added that part as well. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Which is to say, this ends on a very happy, positive note. We are expectant. We are hopeful. We are looking forward to the return of Christ, to the return of the King. And you can't have 10 churches in a big way. There is one holy Catholic church, universal church, apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So this is to say a couple of things, just a couple of quick notes, and then I got to run because we are going to Colorado Springs today. We're going to take my father-in-law, all of us are going to go show him Garden of the Gods. Maybe we'll drive through the grounds for Glen Erie. That'd be cool, especially if they have bighorn sheep on the uh, gaming lawn again. But it's interesting to note, as you look through church history here, there is the addition of detail as you go. Even just 55, 56 years from the First Council of Nicaea to the First Council of Constantinople. What these men were writing was not infallible. And this is where the reformers pushed back against claims that precedent in the Roman Catholic Church justified and made indisputable everything they wanted to do with the selling of indulgences, with teaching about purgatory, etc., etc. No. Sola Scriptura means that Scripture alone is our final authority, It is the only infallible authority when it comes to Christian life and practice. But we see that even in the creeds. We see this creed from the First Council of Constantinople saying, according to the scriptures, adding that bit, according to the scriptures, because this is being disputed. And you have people making things up. They're being taken captive. They have been taken captive by vain and human philosophy, and it's coming out in their variations on sound doctrine, which are unsound doctrine. So do we, big question, do we have a familiarity with these historic creeds? Is this what we believe? Are we listening carefully and closely when someone wants us to, let's say, sing a popular Christian song that might not be doctrinally correct? Yes, it's a catchy tune. Yes, it's popular right now. Is it sound doctrine or does it just feel good because it's appealing to our vanity or our desire to fit in or a sentimentalism, which is common to our age? Important questions to ask, important things to think about. I personally, just answering for myself, I 
have not been very familiar with these historic creeds. I knew that they existed. There's actually a third day song I'll play for you a little bit from that I knew was one of the creeds, but this is just to say like how ignorant I was, how little attention I've paid, how much I've neglected these things. Uh, to my embarrassment, I admit it, but it turns out it's the Apostles' Creed, and they sing it, and it sounds great, and it's cool. But someone could come back, and they could say, if they like somebody else's music better, and somebody else's music has worked into the lyrics contradictions to the Apostles' Creed, someone come, could come back and just be like, yeah, well, yeah. You can believe that if you want to. I don't think that's quite correct. And then they just make something up to justify the fact that they like so-and-so's music better than they like Third Day's music. Well, wait a second. It's not just Third Day's music. Do you know that this is the Apostles' Creed? Do you know anything at all of the historic errors and heresies which have arisen, which arose in the first five centuries of the church, which arose before we were out of even the lifespan of the apostles when the council of Jerusalem had to be called the book of Galatians is chock full of issues pertaining to the Judaizers, the circumcision party. But in the next five centuries, we've got lots of problems in the doctrine of the church with regards to what do we believe about God, the father, son, and Holy spirit. Those have to be addressed But in order to address them and not be taken in by them, you have to know what you believe in order to know what you believe. And in order to believe what you should believe, you have to know the scriptures and read the scriptures and study diligently, commit your heart to God, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. That's really, really important. Not for no reason are we told that in the scriptures. Be sober and vigilant for your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But God is faithful. Put your hope in him. Put your trust in him. Study to show yourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You won't be embarrassed. You won't be sad that you did. You won't be sorry that you did. But I got to run. I got to leave it there. We've got kiddos to get ready. I think we're going to try and leave out about nine. Get down to Garden of the Gods. Maybe take a quick lap around Glen Erie. This cool castle right next to Garden of the Gods. Also, maybe, just maybe, if we have time, we'll hit up Lookout Mountain again. I would love to share that with our kids, and I think Jerry would find it really, really neat. Lookout Mountain looks down over Golden, Colorado, and Denver, Colorado. You can see quite a ways. It's really, really something. But that's what we're going to go do. Lord willing, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. Christ is only begotten Son of He was conceived by the Holy Spirit Born of the Virgin Mary 
suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and dead and buried. And I believe what I believe is what makes me who I am. No, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. <laughs>